If you are just joining us for the first time or the first time in a while, we uh, have been studying the life of Jesus through the Gospel of Luke from beginning to end. We're in chapter 24, uh, the very last chapter of Luke's Gospel. We are at the point in Jesus' life where um, he has experienced death by crucifixion. He has been buried, and he has been raised. We talked about the resurrection last Sunday. And um, we find him today in what we might consider an um, an unusual spot. We're going to talk about the the unusual nature of this uh, scene in just a few moments. Uh, The reading will begin verse 13, and we'll read through verse uh, 35. It's a pretty simple account, really. It's Jesus taking a walk with two of his disciples. Uh, This account that we're going to read is unique to the Gospel of Luke. Luke's the only one that tells us about this particular event. The Gospel of John also has Jesus walking with two disciples post-resurrection, but it's a different two disciples. It's a different day. It's a different subject matter. It's completely different. So this is really unique. This is absolutely unique, what we find here in Luke's Gospel, this account of Jesus taking a walk with a couple of his disciples. And um, you know when we are talking among Christians, we'll often describe our relationship with Jesus as a walk. You know, we'll say things to each other like, how's your, how's your walk going? Or at least we used to say things like that. So what an appropriate picture, Jesus walking with two of his disciples and teaching us things about discipleship through this encounter, okay? So that's what we're going to just try to pull out today is um, four pretty important things about a walk with Jesus, just key points of discipleship, four things, okay? That's, that's all we're going to try to do, and that'll, that'll be good for today. Four things that I hope you can put in your pocket and take home with you that will minister to your heart regarding your personal relationship with Jesus. Um, and if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus yet, um, there are things this morning, um, words that will be shared that I hope will minister to you and speak to you um, in exactly where you are right now and draw you into a relationship with Jesus yourself, okay? So we're looking at simple points about discipleship. Let's read the passage first, and then we'll talk about those four things. If you're able to stand, I want to invite you to do that at this time um, in honor of the Word of God. And again, we're in uh, Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. This is what we find. On uh, that very day, so this is the day of the resurrection, okay? That very day, two of them, And we're talking about disciples here in context. Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, 
and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he, that's Jesus, um, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. Saying the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road. And how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Lord we want our hearts to burn within us too. When we encounter Jesus. Walking with Jesus, um, admittedly, Father, is hard for us. It requires discipline and resolve. Resolve to get back up after we've fallen down. It requires faith. It requires the company of others and the encouragement of others. And all these things we see happening here. We see Jesus as the teacher. So please let him be our teacher now. Let us see what he wants us to know about this walk with him. We pray that you would accomplish that here in these moments. Um, I pray for my own spirit, my own words, that you would um, set my spirit at ease in the Holy Spirit. Give me words that are true. Open the hearts of everyone listening, including my own. Let us receive what you have appointed for each of us. And we ask in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. All right. Please be seated, everyone. I, um, you can see the, the sermon title there. I decided to frame this sermon in terms of the, counter, the counterintuitive things that we see Jesus doing here. Um, there's, there's more than two. I just chose two. Two things that he does that we look at and say, wow, that's the opposite of what I would have expected him to do. Counterintuitive things are things that just don't make sense to us. It's not, it's not what we would do. And so I framed the message this way in terms of the counterintuitive things that we see him doing. And I, I framed these things in the form of questions. So here's the first question that highlights these counterintuitive things that we see him doing. Question number one, why in the world is Jesus walking away from the city? Why would he choose on this day? Remember, it's the day of his resurrection. He's just risen. Why is he walking away from the city? 
We see here that these two disciples that we meet are walking away from the city. They're walking to a, a small village that's about seven miles away from Jerusalem called Emmaus. And Jesus joins them somewhere on this walk and continues the walk with them, just walking away from the city. Now, why is this a counterintuitive thing for Jesus to do? Well, first of all, the city of Jerusalem is where the crowds are. That's where the, that's where the mission field is. That's where all of the unconverted people are. Wouldn't it make sense to go there? We read in verse 18 that everyone in the city is talking about these things that have happened. It's the most talked about thing in town. You can almost hear the incredulity in the voice of Cleopas when he, Jesus asks, what things are you talking about? And he looks at him. Are, really? Are you really the only person? Can there, is it even possible that there is someone who doesn't know what has just transpired there? Really? You're not just playing dumb? You don't know what just happened there? Everyone is talking about it. Everyone knows what happened to Jesus. Now, think about the benefit to Jesus' mission to go and make a physical appearance in the city at this point. Just let your imagination show you what that would have been like for Jesus to walk back into the city and just walk down the street and be on display for people, touchable and and visible. Think about the power of just appearing physically before people, the astonishment and the, the commotion, and think about the opportunity for him to establish the truth of the Christian faith, the linchpin of which is the resurrection. Think about the kickstart that that kind of grand appearance would give to the post-resurrection Jesus movement. I mean, if if I were planning his itinerary post-resurrection, that's where I would have sent him. You're going to go down this street, you're going to go over here, you're going to go to this quarter of town, you're going to show yourself to these people and these people and these people, and yet here he is on a quiet road walking away from the crowds with only two people, and those two are already converted. They're his disciples already. Jerusalem is where the unconverted crowds are, and he's walking away from them. And so there's this second thing. You know, Jerusalem is where the the crowds are, but it's also where his opponents are. And think about the, um, the sweetness of appearing to them. The, the religious leaders who had condemned him. Think about, just in human terms, of the, the, this, the sweet, epic appearance before them to show them that they didn't have the final word. I'm alive again. Not only that, not, not just a matter of getting a measure of revenge, but these religious leaders in Jerusalem... They're the ones who are going to be the main opponents of the coming mission, right? Jesus' disciples are going on mission in the city, and they're going to be opposed by these guys. And these religious leaders are going to put some of them to death. Think about James and think about Stephen and how they're going to be so strongly opposed by the religious leaders and the the, um, possibility that Jesus could appear to the leaders in advance and head off some of that conflict,
This whole scene is just mind-blowing in terms of being exactly the opposite of what we might expect from someone who's inaugurating a movement. Why would, why would Jesus desire this quiet conversation and meal with two already converted disciples? Why would he value that more than making a, a huge, confirming and saving appearance in Jerusalem? And not only, not only that, not, not only everything that we've already said, but the two disciples that he's spending time with, like, have you ever heard of these guys? I mean, one of them, we still don't know his name. I mean, we don't, it, it, we don't even know there was a man. It could have been Cleopas and um, a woman companion. We don't know. They're just followers of Jesus. We, we don't know anything about the identity of this second one. These are not leading disciples that he's spending time with. They were not among the 11. How do we know they weren't among the 11? Because when we read, when they get back to Jerusalem, verse 33, they found the 11. They're not among the 11. They're not among the closest associates. They're, they're not the stars of the movement. They're never going to be the stars of the movement. This is the only thing we hear about Cleopas. Peter's the one that's going to be preaching the, the big sermon in Jerusalem. So, it's fair to say that Jesus was just spending time with two more or less obscure disciples. We don't even know the name of one. Think about who he's giving his time to. I, I think this is beautiful. You know, if you're looking for a leader you can follow, you, especially if you're a member of, of Gen Z, and you're, you're disillusioned with everything you see out there, consumerism, idolatry, materialism, bad leadership... Take this man as your leader. Look what he's doing. He's walking away from the city to go to a quiet place to visit with two obscure people. This is the kind of leader that I want to follow. He's walking away from all of the commotion and choosing to be with these two. All right, a couple of quick discipleship points just from this first question. Key discipleship point number one, relationship comes before mission. In Christianity, it's always relationship before mission. In Luke 24, mission waits. It just waits. Unsaved people are not hearing about the resurrection of Jesus. while people who are close to Jesus are being further instructed in sharing a meal with him. That's relationship, and it's coming before mission. It's not that mission is unimportant. You know, mission, we just describe very generally as taking the news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to people who haven't heard so that repentance and forgiveness of sins can be experienced. That, you just call that mission very generally, taking the news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to people who haven't heard so that they can experience repentance and forgiveness. That's mission, but that's, it's not that that's unimportant. It's just that it's not primary here. If you are a disciple of Jesus, your connection to the vine is primary. John 15 Apart from me, you can do nothing. Meaning connectedness, relationship. 
relationship has to come first. It has to be present. Otherwise, nothing happens. Nothing truly productive happens if you do not remain vitally connected to Jesus. He is the vine. We are the branches. We are to abide. We are to remain in him. Relationship always comes before mission. And that's really hard. It's hard particularly for us to grasp who have grown up in a culture that so much values productivity and efficiency and results that we can measure. And we see these two disciples walking with Jesus. There's, There's nothing measurable happening going on here. They're talking. They're listening. They're eating. They're experiencing a burning feeling on the inside. How are you going to measure a burning feeling on the inside? Relationship takes time. And I, I think it's really, really, really important to, for us all to just let this truth sink into our hearts that relationship comes before mission. I, I know that many of you have launched into a new season of really desiring to share the life of Jesus in your, within your circle of people that don't know, people you're praying for, people you're seeking an opportunity to serve and to tell about Jesus. And that's really, really good, and that honors the Lord, and it's so important, but it's so easy to forget about connectedness to the vine and that Jesus does not value you because you might be efficient or productive. He bought you because he loves you and desires relationship with you. You are not just a cog in a missional machine. And while you're trying to do things for Jesus, it's so easy to measure those things and say, I didn't get to have that conversation today. I I forgot to pray for this person today. I chickened out and didn't say anything today. And, And to get down about that and use that as the measure for how much Jesus loves you, relationship is primary. He loves you. He bought you. He wants to be with you. Besides that, he doesn't need us for anything. He could do all the work on his own. In love, he chooses to involve us. That's point number one, relationship before mission, always. Key discipleship point number two. Here it is. And this is just from out of what we just looked at, okay? Jesus walking away from the city. What's going on here? This is what we learned. There is no number of people or no standing of disciple that is insignificant to Jesus. There's no number of people that's insignificant to him. There's no standing of disciple that's insignificant to him. When he could have been with thousands, he chooses to be with two. When he could have opened up the scriptures to thousands of people and shown all those people how to locate him in the Old Testament, and here's where I am in Moses, and here's where the prophets speak to my death and my resurrection. He could have given that lecture before all those people in two got to hear it. There's no number of people that's insignificant to Jesus. Remember he said, Matthew 18, not where two or three thousand are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Jesus here doesn't consider himself to be with an insignificant number of people. And as we said earlier, these are not the stars that he's with. There's no status or standing of disciple that's insignificant to him. 
He pours out the same richness of grace and blessing upon all of his disciples, regardless of standing or status. You know, I, I would not be surprised at all, and I would, I would make my bet that the, the farthest flung Christians somewhere out there in the, the Amazon area or in Antarctica or Siberia or wherever, whoever that person is knows more about the deep riches of Christ than the most well-versed, well-educated, highest-profile Christian in America. That person out there with no Wi-Fi, no access to the Internet, no usernames, no passwords, just solitude in Christ, I would bet, knows more the deep riches of Jesus in relationship than us with all of our connectedness. Wouldn't surprise me a bit. All of these things are so important for people like us to remember that there are no insignificant Christian ministries. There's no insignificant disciples or people or insignificant Christian gatherings. They're all significant to him. Your work is important to Jesus. Know that from Luke 24, from his presence on this road with those few people. Your work in the home to raise those young disciples if you're a mom. Your stay-at-home dad, reading to your kids and telling them about Jesus, your, or your efforts to reach that one coworker or that one friend, that is significant work to Jesus. It matters. He doesn't use the same distinctions that we do. Size-based, status-based, he doesn't make those distinctions. Here in Luke 24, he honors the small gathering, the disciples of, of no standing. I think it's beautiful. So much to learn just from the simple fact that he's walking away from the city with these two. Let's look at the second question. First counterintuitive thing that we see him do is walk away from the city. Then, then there's this surprising thing. Why does Jesus vanish once they recognize him? I mean, why does he hide himself to begin with? And once they recognize him, then... Just like that, he's gone. We read in verse 30 that they're sharing a meal together. The the bread is broken and it's given out. And then in verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. That whole time they were together on the road and then in the house, they, they didn't know that they were with Jesus. And then once they realized that they're with him, he's gone. Think about some of the the moving reunions that you see. Aren't aren't you just captured every time um, the news captures the the scene of a a soldier returning home and being reunited with their family? Or husband and wife reunited after a long absence. You know, someone was detained or imprisoned overseas, and then there's a reunion. And those are some of the most moving things that we can see. Or moms and dads reunited with their children after something long, and it's... It's so emotional. It's so moving. And so we're just saying, why wouldn't Jesus desire something like that to happen here with these disciples? Remember, he knows them. They're disciples. They've been with him. 
Think about the emotion and the the moving nature of the scene that could have been present on this road. If they see the risen Jesus and are reunited and all the the love and the hugs and all those things, instead he just hides himself. They don't know that it's him. That's the the difference in this reunion scene. They're with Jesus. they, They don't know it. Why would, why would he not want them to know? Why would he not want to make his presence obvious to disciples that he loves? And um, in our lives, we might ask a, a similar kind of question about our experience, like especially when we're going through something hard. Why, wouldn't, why won't Jesus make his presence obvious to me right now? God, why do you seem to be so far off and hiding yourself? In my moment of discouragement, wouldn't you want to make your presence obvious to me? The the Psalms are full of those questions. Here's Here's the bottom line, both here in the text and in our lives. Wouldn't Jesus want to offer his dear ones the comfort of his obvious presence in the midst of their discouragement? Like, isn't that the best thing that he could do for them? These are his disciples. He loves them. We're his disciples. He loves us. And surely in our discouragement, it would be high on his priority list. Like, when we're going through our hardest things in life... Wouldn't you think that would be the time that Jesus would make his presence most obvious? If he really cares about us, really loves us, if there really is relationship? You know, he meets these guys, these two disciples on the road, and they're discouraged. Wouldn't it it be wonderful if he just opens their eyes and says, Here I am? But by his own determination, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. It's not just that he looked different. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So what what can we say in terms of lessons for discipleship? Well, here's key discipleship point number three. We walk with Jesus by faith and not by sight. This is familiar language to you. This is not new, but I'm going to take, put a particular um, angle on it today, that we walk with Jesus by faith and not by sight. This walk with him in this life is by faith and not by sight. We don't see him with our eyes, just like they did not, except for a moment. You know, Jesus' post-resurrection appearances... His post-resurrection time with his disciples are not like his pre-resurrection times with his disciples. When he appears post-resurrection, Jesus seems to want to establish a new paradigm for what life with him is like after the resurrection. What does life look like with Jesus after the resurrection? Before his death, he dwelt with his disciples. He was with them all the time. They were eating together, talking together. They were sharing the same sleeping quarters. They were just together all the time. But after his death, his appearances to them are sporadic. He will be with them for a while, and then he will leave. He's with them, but he doesn't stay. 
And that's, we see that happen here in Luke 24. When, when we get to Acts 1 and read the opening words of Acts, we, we read that he was appearing to them during 40 days. Not spent 40 days with his disciples, like all together the whole time, appearing to them during 40 days, as in sporadically over the period of 40 days, he would make appearances with them, but he did not remain with them. He was not dwelling with them anymore. And so that is the new paradigm for disciples, walking with Jesus. We're not dwelling with him right now. Dwelling with him is a forever thing. Dwelling with him and feasting with him, sharing a meal with him, that is, that is the very de- definition of heaven. Dwelling in the presence of God and the Lord Christ and the Holy Spirit, at home with him, we will dwell with him. Paul, Paul brings all of these concepts together in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. One chapter, Paul brings all of this together. Like that's where we walk with him by faith and not by sight. That's Second Corinthians 5. That's where that language comes from. And this, this often gets read at funerals. You may remember the language that Paul talks about, how we, we long to be out of the body and at home with the Lord. We have this longing that happens. We long to dwell with the Lord, but we're not there yet. We're still in the body. We don't see God physically right now, but we walk by faith and not by sight. The big idea there is that, yes, we'd rather see and be with Jesus. We long for that. That's good. That's our home. But that's a a not yet thing. And what we see happen here in Luke 24 at this table that they're sitting at together, we see Jesus give them a little glimpse, like this briefest moment in time. This glimpse of eternity. For a split second, they experience eternity. Breaking bread in the presence of Jesus. That's it. That's their snapshot. And as soon as they see it, it's gone. Because it's not yet. That life is simply not yet. Right now, for disciples, there is a walking with him that is by faith and not by sight. What does that mean? means that we don't see Jesus. We rely on his promises. Walking by faith and not by sight means we don't see Jesus. We rely on his promises. That's what it means to live by faith. That's not an abstract concept. It's relying specifically on his promises. We take his promises to be as sure as being able to see him. In fact, it's even more sure. Can you always trust your eyes? But can you trust the word of Jesus? Absolutely. 100% all the time. Walking by faith and not by sight means we can't see him, but we rely on his promises. That's key discipleship point number three. Here's the last one. Point four, coming right out of Luke 24, we experience Jesus now primarily through the scriptures. You want to have a religious experience? Are you looking for a religious experience? You need to be in the scriptures. This is where you can find 
Jesus. Just because we don't see him doesn't mean that we can't experience him. Like really experience something on the inside like these two. In this account, the great experience that, of Jesus that these two have, and they say, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Who would have thought that their great experience, like the thing you feel on the inside? I, I talked to someone one time, a friend. I said, what do you want to experience when you go to church? Well, I, I want to experience a little something on the inside. I think if a lot of us are honest, that's something that we would like to happen from time to time. You know, I want to go and I want to feel something. Well, these two feel something. And isn't it interesting that it's in connection with the scriptures. It's as Jesus is pointed out to them in all the scriptures, that is what sets them on fire on the inside. That nearness to the Lord comes through seeing the plan of God unfold over the course of the Bible and having Jesus point out to them, here is where the books of Moses point to me. Here is where the writings point to me. Here I am in the Psalms. Here's where the prophets point specifically to my life, death, and resurrection. That's where they experience their greatest joy. It's interesting. It's not in the vision of Jesus because they don't see him. It's in the scriptures where they see him. And I think this is really instructive for us. It's really counterintuitive for us, too. Like, who out there in the world today is looking for life in a book? Who's looking for an inner feeling of satisfaction and joy in pages written a long time ago? But here's the key, because you may hear all this and think, yeah, I've spent time reading the Bible. I just, I've never felt that way. Like, I can't make sense of most of it. I don't know. Here, here's the key. This isn't any ordinary reading the Bible. These, these two aren't just opening the Bible, the, the Hebrew scriptures, like they always have. And suddenly, there's this sensation and this overwhelming excitement in them. It's as they see Jesus in the scriptures. It's as you get into the Bible and read through the Old Testament, through the lens of Jesus Christ, and see how the whole story points to him. To see the work of God from the foundation of human history and how it unfolds is where the the great realization and the great satisfaction come from. Because in this collection of of books, all throughout, it all points to him. This is where you find the excellencies of Christ revealed to you. The promises of Christ are given. The depth of, of my own need of Christ is explained to me here. The work of Christ for me is declared. The love of Christ for me is assured in these pages. The plan of Christ for my life is delivered to me. The return of Christ to renew all things is, is promised. All of that is here. If you want to know what Jesus says to you, to you today, it's here. If you want to know how he feels about you today, it's here. If you want to know how he wants you to spend your life, it's here. This is your anchor. This is your sure testimony. 
And uh, it's counterintuitive to come here to find life. This is no ordinary book. It's the living and active word of God. And isn't it wonderful that God has chosen to do it this way, that the, the, great, the great experience of Jesus Christ that we, can, that we can have is something that's very ordinary, that you can do daily and quietly and privately to, to get into this word and commune with Jesus Christ. His, his I love you comes through every page of this story. He has chosen these quiet ways. These are the, the different counterintuitive ways of Jesus Christ. He's walking away from the city. He's walking away from the crowds. He's investing in simple disciples like you and me so that we simple disciples can go out and make simple investments for Jesus Christ in the lives of the people around us. That is the significant work, right? So let's, let's keep at it as long and as well as we can. Amen. Lord, thank you for showing us in these pages um, how much individual disciples mean to Jesus and how much our, our simple, simple efforts mean to him. It just sends us completely away from, from everything the world values to, to have a leader say to us, just abide in me. Abide in me and I will do the work through you. I'm so thankful for that. I, I pray that you would just let that message really sink into our hearts this morning, that you desire relationship and that is primary. Thank you that we're not just a cog in a missional machine, but dearly loved children of God. We thank you for that so much in Jesus' name.